Hi, this is Dave Garbett, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, hey Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Who's on the show today? Oh, I could not be more freaking excited. My God, it's Dave Garbett, DP of Evil Dead Rise. Also, he was the most DP, including the pilot of uh, Ash vs. Evil Dead. He also did Sweet Tooth. He's done a lot of amazing, amazing work. But unsurprising to anyone who has ever met me, I spend most of our time talking about Evil Dead Rise and Evil Dead in general and uh, a bit about Sam Raimi. I'm in hog heaven. I just interviewed the DP of Dead Ringers, and now I'm interviewing the new Evil Dead. It's like it's 1988, baby, and I'm talking to all my favorite films. Uh, ben, I'm really thrilled that you're getting to do these interviews and I don't mind sharing the interviews and I'm glad that you got, you know, you, you got to do this one. Hey, a, a listener actually recently uh, reached out to me uh, actually this just this week and said, you know, I don't know uh, who you guys are or what you do. Mm. So I'm going to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Ilya Friedman and I own a company called Hot Red Cameras. We are arguably the best camera shop ever. And it's no argument. Specialized- You've won that argument. Long time ago. We specialize in selling equipment to the motion picture and television Mm -hmm. industry, but we also sell equipment to uh, the U.S. government and to Fortune 500 companies. And we do a lot of consulting on new studio builds and actually uh, technology to manufacturers like camera companies and lens companies. I think right now we still sell more brands of cinema lenses than any other company in the country, which is is cool. So, yeah, that's quite a boast. we, we, I know we got a, we got a lot of stuff. And, and Ben, who are you? Who I mean, are you and what do you, what do you do? I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Do you think Ben oh, Rock man. is my real name? That is the fakest sounding name ever. Uh, yeah, it's on your birth certificate. Benjamin Rock. Benjamin. Benjamin Lowell Rock. It sounds less cool when I say it that way. I'm Ben Rock. I'm a freelance director. I, I might be going on strike here in a few weeks slash months because uh, I'm in the Directors Guild. I do also a lot of uh, editing and uh, various other things. Do theater. Mostly horror stuff, but, you know, mostly horror and thriller. But you know what? I recently did a project that I uh, won't be receiving any credit for that was a personal drama. What do you do? Hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, you, you're also known to do a little bit of stuff in the audio space. I think you've got a, oh, God, a yeah. series, yeah. Yeah, yeah, series well, I, on Audible right now, maybe? Yeah, I did uh, two two full-length uh, audio projects that I co-wrote with my friend Bob DeRosa and directed. Uh, the first one was called Video Palace for Shudder, which is the streamer for horror, but you can get it wherever you get podcasts. And the most recent one was called Catchers for Audible. And if you have Audible, it's free. If you don't have Audible, hit me up on Twitter. I'll get you a free code. Oh, not too shabby. Hey, uh, Ben, what is our our close focus this week? We usually talk about something topical, something that's sort of like in the news. Uh, You know, we we spend a few minutes on it before we dive into the interview with our featured guest. What do we need to talk about this week? Well, I feel like it's impossible to not talk about tone deafness as a performance art form perfected. Andy Kaufman-like by David Zaslav, CEO and president of Discovery and now also Warner Brothers since the merger in his wonderful commencement speech at uh, Boston University, which was shouted down by students complaining, uh, basically chanting, pay your writers, pay your writers. Because obviously, uh, if if you're not living under a rock and obviously anyone (laughs) listening to this is attuned to some degree to the entertainment business, Writers Guild are on strike. SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG-AFTRA, I should say, 
just had a strike authorization vote, which means that's the first step towards SAG going on strike. And Mm -hmm. uh, the DGA, which I'm a member of, is currently under negotiations. So I don't know where that's going, but I have already decided that if it goes to a strike authorization vote, I would vote to authorize the strike personally. Uh, well, but, uh, but it's hilarious. And, uh, you know, maybe Ben Katz can play a little bit of the audio for us because everyone's timing is like it's like an episode of Veep. It's such perfect timing where he's talking about how you have to learn to get along with difficult people while he's being a horrible person. And then he gets shouted down by students at Boston University. Respect and kindness is something that will change the way people see you. It's important, it's an important lesson for all of you. It's an important lesson for me. I think it's been the thing that's been most, the thing that has, that has probably had the biggest impact on my success is the respect and kindness of other people. And just chef's kiss, honestly, around for everyone. For him, <laughs> for the students, everyone played their part to absolute perfection it, it just need julia louis dreyfus or someone to come in and and make a funny face or something and it would have it would have fit perfectly into veep pay uh, your riders <laughs> pay your riders he spoke for like 20 minutes and uh the heckling pretty much went on the entire time it, yeah. it's you know the, the university of course came out and said that they understood students need to peacefully protest but they disagreed that this was the appropriate appropriate venue and way well, to do it i would but, counter that he was an inappropriate commencement speaker and i'm not just saying that because there's a writers guild strike going on discovery channel for years has been known to like scoop up other companies and underpay everybody mm-hmm. and now they've got warner brothers God only knows what's going to happen. You know, Robert Pattinson's going to have to get a job at Sizzler as a short order cook in order to keep playing Batman. <laughs> I also just think that it's somewhat ironic that uh, here you've got someone who's notorious for not giving people a fair deal, telling everyone in college that they have to essentially emulate him if they want to be successful, which, of course, is absolutely yeah. not true. I've been and, hearing uh, I've been getting an earful about this from I don't know if he would want his name said out, out loud, so I won't say it, but a former agent of mine who left Hollywood and left being an agent bazillions of years ago and went to work for Discovery Channel. And he worked there as an executive at Discovery Channel for a long time. And for like the last three months, he's been peppering me with hate that he has for David Zaslav. As my former agent, I, and, and as a friend of mine, I can attest that this person loves the art of film and television, loves storytelling, is a great critical thinker and a great reader and whatever, and somehow had uh, the love of that squished out of him wow. under the Discovery Channel regime. And he was there for at least a decade, probably a little more than a decade. So uh, he's not there now, but like ever since they took over Warner Brothers, he's been uh, messaging me and telling me like, you know, doomsaying about what's going to happen. And, and he just, he abbreviates it as DZ. He's like, DZ is going to suck all the life out of blah, blah, blah. Like, and he's been kind of right on. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's actually prescient that we're talking about this today because today, I believe, is the day that HBO Max just becomes Max. That's true. Yes. Yeah. Of course, as you know, DZ is the uh, CEO of uh, Warner Brothers yeah. Discovery. Yeah. This has got to be something one of his, that. Uh, one, I mean, in addition yeah. to simply canceling a Batgirl movie that had been completely finished and cost $80 million or something. In addition to that, yeah, he, he said, you know what people want out of HBO Max? They want it to sound like you're casually referring to an old vaudevillian. Let's just call it Max. Hmm. Hey, Max. 
You know, I think people have already forgotten this, but Warner Brothers really was the first to dump big tentpole movies to their streaming service, which really like angered a lot of people way back when. Yeah. Uh, Wonder Woman. There was a bunch of things that that came out. Exactly. In in the pandemic, they just went, well, you know, this isn't going to make any money. And everyone's going to the theaters right now. Let's let's put it here. Some Uh, of those were pandemic moves, and I would cut them all the slack in the world for that, you know, but. I agree, but I, I got to say that if you look at the at the life lesson of Top Gun, which held off and held off and held off and then went to theaters and became this, you know, incredible hit. I don't know. Maybe that wasn't the right call. Maybe it didn't uh, you know, necessarily bolster that service, especially now since they're trying to merge it with all this other stuff and change yeah. it and everything else. Anyway, it will be something that we continue to watch for a while. But I would say that I know way more people who are hbo max subscribers than they are to traditional linear hbo and this rebrand i think decimates the power and prestige that hbo as a brand had on its own because this is going to be their association now not that not the the legacy i'll be interested because i remember when sci-fi channel changed to sci-fi you know syfy and everyone was making fun of it and then it didn't Mm, matter well they didn't totally change their channel though too at the same time so that's true yeah well i will be interested to see what how max is different than hbo max ben i think it's about time let's get to the interview here we go the cinematography podcast interview so uh, we're here transcontinentally talking to you in New Zealand with Dave Garbett, who shot a movie I've talked about a lot on the podcast, Evil Dead Rise, lots of other stuff. Thank you for coming on the show, Dave. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So stoked. So I don't know if Alana prepared you for this, but I'm the world's biggest Evil Dead fan. Uh, mm-hmm. I have long maintained, and I will I will go down fighting on this, that Evil Dead is the most perfect horror franchise ever made. There is not one bad entry. What it was, a 2013 where they kind of did the reboot? Yeah. It's great. All of the original ones, all great. Army of Darkness, Evil Dead 2, Ash versus Evil Dead, which you shot more of than any other DP. Yep. Just brilliant. All of it is brilliant. And then Evil Dead Rise, <laughs> which, you know, like I, I went and saw it. Uh, I have a five year old kid. So going to see a movie means mm-hmm. a whole big deal about getting a babysitter and everything. And uh, like I, it was my birthday the day before it came out. And I'm like, on my birthday, I'm going to go see Evil Dead Rise. So my wife <laughs> and I went and saw it. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. So congratulations right. for being a very important part of this series. And if I'm not mistaken, you're the cinematographer who has shot more Evil Dead than any other cinematographer. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, I guess no, nobody's ever kind of put it like that. But yeah, I guess I am. If you put Ash vs. Evil Dead into the kind of mix, it's not something that I chose really and ended up kind of for one reason or another in the position to say, would you like to do this? And of course I said, absolutely. And, and then kind of rolled from there. And it's um, something that has been, you know, a lot of fun to do and incredibly creative. And I've sort of felt the most responsibility with this last film when it sort of dawned on me that I was dealing with something that is loved by people around the world and, and doing right by it was something that myself and all the people working on it really felt a, some kind of responsibility to do certainly our very best to try and get it right. I would like to think that we've delivered something that is something that will live amongst those other amazing films and sort of stand shoulder to shoulder with them and, and carry on and who knows kind of what will happen with it in the future. But hopefully oh. it's a good um, well, I mean, chain. I, and the, 
I saw an interview, I think it was with Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell, where they're saying that they are indeed going to be doing some more Evil Dead. So the fact that it's a bona fide box office hit certainly means that the appetite is there. But when you say that you weren't enough, like necessarily drawn specifically to this genre or this kind of film, when you started out, what were your ambitions? You know, like when did you decide in your life that being a cinematographer was going to be the path you were going to take? I, you know, I didn't really know anything about the film industry when I was growing up. I didn't know anyone that was kind of part of it or I had never been on a film set, nothing like that, right up to the end of high school. And I left school and a friend of mine had done a soup, like a sort of a film course shooting Super 8. And my friend Todd was like, why don't you come to film school? There's a film school that's just kind of started in Auckland. That's where I'm going to go. Why don't you just do that? And And it was like a... It's just something I had never even considered as an option, but it suddenly it was just like, yeah, like what, why wouldn't I do that? That's something that actually sounds like a lot of fun to do. And just kind of, I just switched over and I kind of enrolled in this film school and, and went to film school with him. And it was just, I guess, during the course of that year that we were um, going to school, I sort of wanted to probably be a director because that's all I kind of really knew existed. (laughs) But then, you know, once we started to kind of make little films and stuff like that, and I kind of realized that this position of director of photography worked very closely with the director in in terms of the way the film was constructed, the way the visuals were constructed, the way the scenes were kind of blocked. You did that sort of stuff, but you also did the technical kind of aspects. And I like, I still really like that part of being being a director of photography because you just, you do both. You sort of straddle those two kind of things. But yeah, and I mean, again, in New Zealand at the time, there wasn't really a kind of a film industry at that time. Yeah, that, that's a big question that I, that I have because like when I talk to filmmakers in Australia, for instance, like Australia has its own completely separate film industry that flourishes and lots of movies get made and not that many of them get here to the States. And I'm curious about New Zealand, if it's the same thing in New Zealand, like I'm sure Peter Jackson looms large because he brought your film industry to the world. But I, I don't know who the other players really are, the, the people who I might not know who are New Zealand based and doing interesting work there that would be worth checking out. Yeah, those films like um, Quiet Earth, um, mm-hmm. Sleeping Dogs, uh, and a few other ones which were quite sort of high concept ideas. And I think the filmmakers then kind of leveraged what we have here in New Zealand as lots of kind of like nothing, <laughs> like in the sense of lots of unpopulated areas. Yeah, there's a couple of films that had that sort of premise where it was somebody that was kind of no other people around and stuff. As you were going to film school and stuff, was there a sense that you could make a living as a filmmaker based in New Zealand and not have to go to, a, to another country or something like that? Um, there was kind of just the beginnings. The industry as it is now was kind of it was the kind of an em- embryo of, of what it was going to become. So there were, and yeah, I, sh- I should mention films like Once for Warriors and the Piano. Um, oh God, ca- came yeah. out just at that moment. Just probably the, I think it was maybe the year after I went to film school or something like that. But it was right. It was Man. at a moment. There was a few couple of really really incredible films that just that ca- that came out that sort of that Once for Warriors is such. I wouldn't yeah. say it's underrated. It's just a movie people don't talk about enough, and it is a freaking masterpiece. It's so great. Uh, it's so good. And I actually went I actually went back and watched it about a year and a half ago, having not seen it for 15 or 20 years maybe, uh, and it still holds up really well. Um, you, just some, you, know, you just have those films sometimes that just, you know, they will just work forever, you know? And so, um, mm. so that, yeah, so there's these kind of inspirational moments in kind of in the, in the local industry. And then, of course, Lord of the Rings, you know, Peter Jackson generated this kind of groundswell and, and Frighteners and Heavenly Creatures was quite successful. And then I, I went over and lived in England for a couple of years, the two years that Lord of the Rings was um, produced here. 
so I probably would have worked on it too, but I was away. Um, yeah. I was away for those those two years, but um, so so I didn't get a chance to do it. Well, let's get into a little bit of Evil Dead here because you sort of bridged two different versions or two different poles within the world of Evil Dead because Ash versus Evil Dead has big scares and stuff, but I would say is damn near a comedy. You know, it's like Bruce Campbell is actively hilariously funny in that. He's hilarious in that. He's hilarious in Army of Darkness, but then even kind of coming back to this character. And you, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you shot the pilot for Ash versus Evil Dead, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was to me. Uh, yeah, and uh, which, which Sam, Sam Raimi, Sam, Sam Raimi directed. directed. Yeah, amazing. Such a such a great experience. S- Sam Raimi doesn't cover a scene like anyone else. Like his camera work, his shot design, his pacing, everything is so unique to him. Yeah, and also having then gone on to Ash vs. Evil Dead and working with Bruce Campbell, I realised that that so much of you know he is he is kind of Evil Dead in, in many yeah. respects. You know, because he his everything kind of radiated out from from that performance you couldn't sort of replace him with another actor and, and no it, no one else no one else could play ash i mean like he, he yeah is, it, was, he is it ash. just wouldn't it wouldn't work you know it wouldn't work because he's just bringing kind of such a personal thing to it and getting kind of hard to define but um yeah so that the pilot episode of that i mean i, I that whole series was you know just so much fun to kind of shoot but you know that pilot episode with sam such such a kind of sort of game changer for me well, let's like talk about there is a very signature Evil Dead shot, which, uh, you know, I think when he was 19 making the first one, they like made some camera mount out of a piece of plywood or something and two people would run with it. And it's sort of the evil presence POV and it's like a little shaky sometimes. Where does that come in? When do you go, OK, well, we need one of those in the scene or maybe it's just in the script. And how do you use modern equipment or do you use modern equipment to replicate what those guys did with a 16 millimeter camera, you know, when they were all teenagers yeah that's that's a really good one i mean and that that evil force pov i've i've done like very very many of those yeah i know i, <laughs> I don't so i don't you, so you've done we, more of them than literally anyone on the planet yeah, you are yeah, you're and, the expert on the and, evil dead you know, force shot and i gotta say there's no um there was never one recipe for it it always had to do different things because that because we did and i think in that episode the first one sam wanted to do is he is like we, we want to go uh, it wants to, it's coming to the value stop or I forget the name of the, the place, but it's the stand in for S smart. It should yeah, have been S smart. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The camera had to fly kind of through over, I think it was over a fence or something. And then it had to go low and had to go, um, through a car window out the other side of a car window. So through the glass smashed through, through the thing, go under another car and then kind of fly over these over this kind of place where the shopping trolleys and stuff go and um, end up sort of in the face of the, the manager. And and that was a really good, that was an example. It was like, okay, well, here's, here's this kind of idea that's been thrown at us. And it's, so the camera's got to go, it's got to go through, it's got to go over the top of something. Then it's got to go right through a car. There are a couple of cut points, so it doesn't need to, it doesn't have to be a single shot. So, so that's good. We ended up just going, kind of breaking it down and going, I think we ended up with a gimbal initially that we put the camera on a long scaff pipe for the moment that went through the, through Mm. the car on, on the back of a remote control car. And the next bit, it was back in the gimbal on a techno crane that went over the top of these shopping trolleys. And then we did a handoff where I grabbed it and, and the grip unpinned it and we ran sort of to continue that move up into the, right up to, to this person's kind of face. And you always had to define what was, what was this thing 
and of course it's like well i don't you know it's it's yeah. sort of undefined still <laughs> exactly what it is but what it does have is, is it has an energy about it and it needs it needs to have a intensity and any energy around it but it you, and you only sort of know it when you see it if it's too yeah. slow and labored it doesn't work if it's too it's kind of a wide angle generally too right would you yeah yeah what wide-ish angle although we kind of we see he said it was like big big bendy angle and then we went back to i think the first evil dead and it was it's not it was not anywhere near as wide as i kind of had remembered it you know from from mm. viewing it and i was like it's actually kind of long so so that even that changed a little bit um i think he said that he'd used an eight mil lens on the original, but that would have been a 16 mil camera. So, yeah, so yeah, like little, roughly, little roughly double that. Yeah. yeah, and then we ended up doing ones where we just did, did a very lightweight rig and just ran, just ran with it handheld. And that was often the best because it, it always had a organic kind of nature that's whenever we did it on gimbals and we, and we often, you know, you put it on a, some sort of gimbal and then do that sort of mimic kind of mode where you could keep a, an organic nature to the movement but mm. be able to run and hand off to, from one person to another and throw it up and over things and do it so it could do stuff or even chuck it on a drone or whatever and and you could still have a sort of an organic feel to it if you have it you know so you have the the module in your hand doing it handheld and but we just we went through, i mean it was kind of fun one of the fun aspects of that ash versus evil dead i mean you just get a new script in and you just be like like what the hell are we shooting this time it's just, <laughs> it's just like the most insane you know it's oh his his like the colon of this dude is going to attack him and i remember <laughs> that scene yeah yeah it's just that like, scene it's like is what insane. the hell yeah and you, you just, <laughs> it was very funny it was very kind of cool because you just get the like every every week you'd just be like what what is the kind of bizarre situation i'm going to find myself in this week <laughs> i mean that was what was really cool about coming to the film because it's just like i've done this i've done a hundred iterations of this, this shot so I can, I know we can go right to the, what's the thing that really kind of nailed, you know, what was the thing that had the right kind of, the right intensity about it. Yeah. So when, even like when in the, op- the yeah. first shot of Evil Dead Rise, when you're like moving through the woods, you know, yeah. uh, it yeah. was like immediately I'm like, okay, I, I, I know I'm going to at least like this movie based on the yeah, first good, good, shot. Good. Yeah. Cause so, I mean, that was, that was, I mean, interestingly, we, that was a technique that we hadn't used on anything else. Cause it was, that was, that was a very small camera on the back of an FPV drone that was yeah. hard mounted, but it was actually really cool that it was hard mounted because it had that kind of roving, there was no stabilization or anything. So it had, it had a real organic nature and it had, you know, um, Ryan who's flying it, just trying to fly it through all these kind of like broken branches and stuff. And I actually took my, when we were trying to find that location, I took my drone up there and actually and crashed it into the water and, and it like, yeah. killed my drone. <laughs> going over there up that little river um that it ends uh. up going up in, in in the movie but um that was a yeah, different technique but I, I knew we could we could hone in on what the energy of that thing was going to be so like um, what's the constant dna though uh you know creatively between the original sam raimi movies and the tv series which you shot you know more episodes than anyone else of and this movie i mean we could also say the last movie you know from 2013 or whatever because you know evil dead rise isn't humorless but i would say that like whereas ash versus evil dead is kind of a gory cartoon it's goofy and fun and it's got scares in it but it's like evil dead rise 
is a straight up horror movie and is edge of your seat and terrifying and in a lot of ways just like really going for it. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. so what's what's the constant DNA between those two things? Because I know Sam Raimi, Rob Tappert and Bruce Campbell were supposedly very involved in Evil Dead Rise, even though they didn't direct it in uh, Bruce Campbell's not in it. Yeah. Yeah, and they you know certainly on a day-to-day basis, they you know they went. No one was hanging around on set, you know, giving any kind of instructions or anything like that. I mean, I think it's that's a it's kind of an interesting question. It kind of made me think of something which I hadn't really thought about too much. Is is that 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 comedic aspect of Evil Dead is so much a Sam and and a Bruce. Um, I mean, I, I think Lee always wanted to fundamentally make a horror film. That was, mm-hmm. that, but it was basically was a was a scary horror film. Was not was not a comedic, even though it does have have those little kind of moments. It's got a real of, wit to it, comedy. like like yeah, like yeah there's witty kind of yeah. moments. Yeah, those well, like there's that there's humor. that scene. Yeah. I, I don't want to ruin it for people, but there's a scene that you yeah. shot all through a peephole. That's yes, per- perfectly yeah. choreographed and yeah. Yeah. horrifying, but also really funny in the way that it's yeah. done. Like it's just yeah. it's a it's 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 witty. Yeah, so so Lee and Fetty always had a different different intention for it, and that's their thing. But I was thinking, if you were a filmmaker and you wanted to try and emulate or reinvent that comedy aspect of um, Evil Dead without Bruce, I think that would be challenging in a way that would be very difficult, if not impossible. To, I mean, you'd you'd have to have a very special kind of take on it or something to actually create something that that had the the comedy aspects of the Bruce Campbell Evil Deads without him in it. It mm. would be a, and, and and I think that would be uniquely challenging and I think and I, and I don't know who that person would be that would be able to pull that off in a way that that you know was kind of satisfactory probably to the Evil Dead kind of yeah because you know because it of, is like you have like this 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 terrible body snatching demon movie and in the middle of it you've got Buster Keaton you know yeah just yeah and it's it. just like how do you how would you reenact that or how I, I don't know because you couldn't pretend you couldn't try and reenact that because if you did it would I think it would be a disaster you know yeah it, it would have to be something quite different and a different I mean maybe um it'd take a very kind of unique kind of individual to even go there to try that but but you know um in, in terms of that sort of consistent DNA strands or whatever that exists through the thing I mean I think that probably exists mainly in probably Lee's love for Evil Dead and at least in Evil Dead Rise mm-hmm. further to that Myself, uh, Nick Bassett, production designer, who was also production designer on Ash vs. Evil Dead. And he and I, you know, he and I have been together, on, you know, right from the beginning of Ash vs. Evil Dead. And, and that experience that we had, the, you know, three or four months that we spent with Sam and getting to know and understand him. Mm. <laughs> and, of, you know, and knowing the, how the films, because we never tried to draw, we never looked at the films and went, oh, well, let's try and do this because they did it. You know, there was never, never we always tried to move in a kind of a forward direction and they're sort of ticking the box in, in, in a sense, but for paying homage or whatever, however you want to put it, it's doing that, but it's also doing it in a way that's sort of different. And it's also important to this story. It's not just going, uh, you know, oh, well, I'm going to do this because it, it reminds it'll remind people of the original Evil Dead's. It, I'm, I'm doing it, but it's also important to this story. I think Lee, Lee managed to kind of utilize those Evil Dead tropes in a, in a really good way that didn't feel like he was trying too hard to, to do that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they, they were intrinsic to the story, to the Evil Dead Rise story and not just thrown in there as a kind of an attachment um, necessarily. 
Well, I feel like I feel like I've kept you for long enough. I I could talk about Evil Dead stuff all day. I'm I'm excited to know more. But um, before we go, obviously, I can't recommend Evil Dead Rise enough. And, uh, you know, probably a lot of our audience has already seen it because it's a huge hit. No, congrats. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for making. I mean, like, I'm not exaggerating at all. It's like it's my birthday. There's only one thing I want to do, and that's I want to see Evil Dead Rise. Oh, that's, uh, that's great. That's great. Uh, Hopefully, yeah, you enjoyed it. That's a fun oh, film. No, no. That's a fun uh, film to watch. No, yeah. we, we, we both loved it. And again, like I, I feel like Evil Dead is the most unblemished franchise. I'll say beyond horror, like of all franchises, there's not one sour note in any of them. Yeah, I should yeah, just, the, just, just add my, my friend Aaron Morton was the DP on, on the previous uh, Evil Dead and he's, yeah. he's somebody that taught me a lot. Did you and, take any cues from that? Because I, I mean, it, it felt tonally like that one and Evil Dead Rise were more similar maybe than any other two pieces of Evil Dead franchise, period. You know, yeah, like I, I even, think, even I, Evil Dead 2 to Army yeah. of Darkness, they're like so different in tone. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, yeah, 100%. That, um, yeah, I, I don't, n- not directly, but probably indirectly. I know like Lee, Lee was a really big fan of that film, as was I, and I thought they did a really amazing job. And um, and, and you both have, uh, let's let's say, a lot of blood raining down on people. <laughs> yeah, quite, yeah. quite literally. Quite, yeah, li- literally, yeah. Well, cool. So besides going to see Evil Dead Rise in theaters right now, where can people uh, find your work online if they want to investigate more of your cinematography? I'm pretty slack when it comes to kind of, you know, social media and stuff. I have an Instagram, but it's just got nothing really that good on it. <laughs> I did I, I did put some stills, some production stills from Evil Dead on it the other day. But I've got, um, we've got, I, we just finished a production, a Netflix show called Sweet Tooth, which is on. Um, oh my God, we didn't even talk about Sweet Tooth. That's an amazing show. I'm sorry. I oh, can't yeah. believe we, no, we skipped no, that's, right that's over that. Got, yeah, I, I was going to say, um, that's, we've just, season two just came out of that. Oh, wow. And we've, and we've also, because we actually shot the third season, which is, it just kind of gets better and better and better, that show. It's, it's just so good. It's, um, that's so, I think that's like sort of literally the kind of opposite end of the kind of visual spectrum in many respects. It's sort of, a, it's quite a different, yeah. it's, it's but not it's, well, horror. It's, 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 it's fantasy though. I mean, like it's. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's actually quite hard to define that show to me, to be honest. But um, that's definitely, you know, very pr- proud of that because I think between between Evil Dead and Sweet Tooth, that's the, my last, the last three years of my life. <laughs> oh, wow. I hope we get a uh, hundred more Evil Dead movies and uh, we'd love to have you back on the show any anytime uh, when you've got something new coming out. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah we'll absolutely. Love, I'd love to come back. And thank you for asking me. So that was Dave Garbett, Unparalleled Thrill. And by the way, I was very, very happy to learn that Dave Garbett listens to our podcast. Nice. That's great. Yeah. It's, all, it's always fun when people who we have on the show tell us that they actually are listeners to the show, too. And so that, yeah, that, that's yeah. wonderful. Again, I, I think Evil Dead Rise is awesome and, uh, you know, definitely worth seeing in the theater if it's, if it's still playing in a theater near you. Yeah, absolutely. And now, short ends. Ben, guess what? It is time for our patent pending short end time of the show it is uh the time when man when are we gonna get that patent yeah i know man, we're, we're, we're working on it slow <laughs> man this ip is is really tough to protect hey it's the time of the show when we talk about our obsession of the week if there's something that you're really into it could be a show it could be technology it could be anything what is it in this crazy world of things going on right now are you all about i'm gonna guess is it a podcast it is not a podcast. <laughs> wow. All right. Breaking with tradition. It is a, a documentary film by someone who I'm friends with, but that's not the reason to watch it. Although he's a great guy by Scott Liebrecht. It's called Jurassic Punk. And mm. it is about Steve 
Spaz Williams. Sorry that I know we're not supposed to say Spaz, but that's the guy's nickname. And it is a fascinating documentary. I saw it on Canopy. It's on Canopy right now. So if you have a library card, you can get Canopy for free. I believe it's also on Tubi and a couple other services. And I I mean, you, you can also pay for it on Amazon Prime and stuff. So who is Steve Williams? Well, Steve Williams, if you've seen a movie in the last 30 years, you've seen reverberations of what Steve Williams brought to the world. Steve Williams is the guy who merged computers with filmmaking to create CGI as we know it for industrial light and magic Mm. and was never really given his due credit, but like, you know, a couple of little things. And and again, like this, this is going way back, getting the way back machine here for a second. He had studied in college. He had studied art and computer science and was trying to figure out how to merge those two things. So he's a really great artist, but he also understood all of these, you know, computer programs. We're talking late eighties falls in at ILM. And when James Cameron is making a little movie called The Abyss, they have a scene that's kind of famous. If you haven't seen The Abyss, it's an amazing movie. But there's a scene where a water tentacle comes out, a tentacle of water comes out and interacts with Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastro Antonio. And you look at it today and it still looks great. Like it holds up. The effect itself, you don't look at it and go, well, that looks old. It, lo- it holds up. But you don't look at it and go, oh my God, I've never seen anything like that. That was literally the first time anyone had ever done anything like that with CGI. Uh, Mind blowing. And then, and this was a little bit, there's that documentary called Light and Magic that's on Disney+. Plus. It, it, this is almost like a good, this pairs well with Disney+, Plus in that it's telling kind of the same story from an opposite point of view. So when they were making Jurassic Park, Originally, Phil Tippett was going to stop motion animate or go motion animate all the dinosaurs, and he was doing tests and stuff like that. And Steve Williams basically looked at that and said, why don't we just do this with computers? And no, and he was shut down, including by Dennis Murin, who is like a multiple Academy Award winning uh, VFX supervisor, who was like the big dog at ILM, who was his boss. And so in his own time, he went and animated a T-Rex skeleton and made sure that it was playing on a monitor when Kathleen Kennedy and Steven Spielberg walked in a room to do a VFX or a stop motion test. And Kathleen Kennedy walked over and said, what's that? And wow. that be- that was the beginning of the end of Jurassic Park being done with Go Motion. Now, Phil Tippett, there's a great documentary about Phil Tippett as well. But Steve Williams is, he seems like an impossible person to work with. Like he seems extremely difficult and it's because he's kind of a knee-jerk rebel and whenever somebody says we can't do x he fixates on only doing x and he'll and he would do it in in his spare time but i would say the documentary works and scott liebrick deserves so much credit for this as a character study of steve williams in so doing you know and he's an alcoholic and he's had relationship problems he has grown children who who talk about living with him and stuff like that and two exes that are interviewed and also all of these people who used to work with him including phil Tippett and jamie heineman of mythbusters you're like oh yeah yeah i get that you would be friends with jamie heineman but uh it's such a good character study of him in a sense it's kind of a i don't want to say it's a tragedy because he's he seems like he's in a good place in his life but he's someone who like he came in, he revolutionized the industry. They show like, you know, you get the story and I don't think anyone disputes what he did on Jurassic Park and on The Abyss, but then they show Dennis Murin winning the Oscar for it and not even mentioning Steve by name. Oh, wow. In a way, Dennis Murin is almost the bad guy of this film. Mm. And, you know, over time, he kind of just gets 
forgotten. And he's just an interesting guy. He's an inter- it's an interesting character study. And at the same time, it's just a wonderful expose of how the business can work. Doesn't have to work that way, but how it can work. So check it out. Definitely wherever you can find it. Jurassic Punk, directed by Scott Liebrecht. Nice. I will totally check that out. That sounds like something I, I'd like to see. Super uh, entertaining, too, by the way. You'll, you will not be bored. So what is your short end this week? It's technology related. Panasonic's about to release a new camera. You know that I am a fan of Panasonic. They have been the leader in the mirrorless HDSLR, 4K SLR sort of space for years, basically uh, since the beginning. The uh, in, a sense, in a sense, we're doing this podcast because you founded Hot Rod Cameras because you used the, was it the GH1 or the GH2? GH1. So it was way, way back in the GH1, and I made the uh, Hot Rod PL adapter. I'm the inventor of this adapter that allows you to use professional cinema lenses on what at that time was one of the very first mirrorless cameras and the first camera that actually shot a recognized actual format of HD, which was 1920 by 1080, 23976 frames per second. That was the only at the time camera that could do that. And so I thought, oh, it'd be a good director's finder, crash camera, whatever it would be. Made this PL mount adapter, brought it to market. We sold them all over the world and we became the most popular uh, PL mount adapter in the world at that time because also we were the the only people doing it. But uh, Panasonic has continued to push the game forward. And every time they come out with a new camera release, they usually have a little bit of a leapfrog over what other technology is out there. There. Now, I'm, I'm about to talk about the Lumix S52X. I know it just rolls off the tongue, but it is the updated version of the S52, which exists out there and is 99.9% the same camera. But the X version is blacked out and it comes pre-installed with this firmware update, which allows it to uh, record a couple different flavors of what, raw. What do, you it, mean, what do you mean blacked out? Blacked out. Sorry. Uh, it actually usually on Panasonic Lumix cameras, uh, it says Lumix across the top in white. This is like someone, you know, murdered out a car and tinted the windows. The Lumix has been turned into black. So it's black on black. And they okay. did this very purposefully because generally people who are, uh, you know, filmmakers or people out there are trying to keep a low profile. They don't want anything that can make a reflection. And white is way more reflective than black. So if you're shooting and, and by let's windows, be honest, black yeah. camera tape, crazy expensive, you know. I just think it's a little bit tacky to have the black camera tape, but everyone out there, that's what they do. You know, most brands out there, their cameras aren't necessarily black. They might be gray or some other sort of charcoal or, or, and some camera manufacturers these days, they are making limited edition white versions of their cameras. Don't Why? get me started on that because they say it's a status thing. But regardless, Panasonic is, is that's, like, that's why I have a camera. It's for status. You know, yes. Cause it, don't get me started on the ever, whole. Everyone, I want everyone to appreciate how cool I am. Cause I got a camera. <sighs> you know, I, if you told me 15 years ago that there was going to be a movement in the camera crafts uh, where camera as lifestyle and camera as status, I, I wouldn't have believed you because it's it, at the end of the day, it's a tool. It's like saying like, oh, I've well, got this incredible but, like I've got this incredible desktop planer at Home Depot. Yeah. <laughs> all, all you people out there who don't have the desktop planner, all you guys got the Harbor Freight version. Ooh, it's like that. <laughs> well, I just want to say a, a, a two word response to that, though. Digital Bolex. Digital bollocks, yeah. That, right. was, that yeah, was a lifestyle that was, choice. That, that was, was, it was more a of a lifestyle choice than a camera. I mean, it all was right. a good camera. I'm not saying it was a bad camera, but like they went out of their way to make it stylish and to make it like look like and feel like an old Bolex, which is like, yeah, that maybe isn't the most ergonomic choice if you're making a movie, but whatever. 
Uh, anyway, getting back to the Lumix S52X, it has something you're going to really like. It's a full frame sensor. Uh, I, I, I do people. love that. And this camera has a lot of really advanced features, including now I think it's the first uh, mirrorless camera that records two flavors of RAW to external recorders. It can record like a ProRes RAW to like Atomos recorders, but now also has Blackmagic's B-RAW RAW mm-hmm. ability to record it to the Blackmagic recorder. And it's got a it's got a couple other like really cool whenever i choose whenever i see a b-raw file i'm on i'm like what's up bra <laughs> what's up bra yeah well uh it works great with davinci there's a few more compression options so you can have smaller file sizes so there's a, some real advantages for some people out there for the black magic format and i totally totally get it this camera also is the first panasonic camera to have the phase detect autofocus which it's definitely been a point in which panasonic cameras have been criticized in the past and for people who are generally working in film style Autofocus is not a thing, but more and more people are calling like running around in the street and making YouTube videos or, you know, small commercials and stuff filmmaking and not actually using the vernacular for what that is. And for them, autofocus is mandatory. They must have autofocus. And so uh, also, I just want to say, if you're a documentary filmmaker, doesn't hurt. That's a different thing, too. That's a different thing, too. And especially when you're talking full frame, because full frame is more shallow depth of field and the nice thing about the panasonic too is though uh that sensor you have the ability to shoot in different sensor sizes too you can crop in there and you can work in different ways but panasonic does some really smart stuff there are pl mount adapters available for it of course from hot rod cameras and this camera hasn't even shipped yet it's twenty two hundred dollars it also i know it's it's a ridiculously good value so at two thousand two hundred dollars we have a pre-order over at hot rod cameras we can pre-order this camera for someone who's got 2200 bucks and they're looking for a uh, really legitimate body and you might have some cinema lenses or something else, you can slap a hot rod PL adapter on this and you can work with all your cinema glass or there's a kit that comes with a very serviceable 20 to 60 for like a couple hundred dollars more. This, If you are in the market looking to upgrade a camera that has all the, you know, sort of like video functions, all of the creature comforts of like focus assist and zebras and all the different sorts of things plus raw it is really difficult to beat this camera and it is the type of camera that i think you could buy and you could very happily have for a decade this is not going to go obsolete anytime soon and you have a tremendous amount of native cam- native lenses that can be used on this camera and also uh, you can adapt pretty much uh, most anything out there because the lens mount on it's particularly shallow, which means that uh, there are EF adapters and things like that. Like for, for Canon or whatever. Lenses. Exactly. So it's it's a really promising camera. Uh, it's very, very affordable. And uh, for those of you who didn't like having smaller sensors, it felt like having a small sensor was a compromise. No small sensor here. It is a is a much larger sensor. So it's, you know, it's full frame. There you go. Uh, what what about what about light sensitivity? Like, what's its native ISO? Oh my God, it's it's ridiculous. I, I'd have to check to tell you what its uh, native settings are, but uh, I've used it at like fifty thousand ISO and stuff like Whoa. that. It's, it's it's incredible. So yeah, it, no, it's got some very very capable low, low light performance, and you, you won't need to do that. More likely, you'll want some ND filters. So excellent, excellent. Well, that's great to hear, man. Yeah. Uh, all right. So Ben, uh, that's just about going to do it for this episode. Uh, who do we have to thank this week? As always, we should thank Alana Cody, who has been uh, working triple time to get us uh, some amazing interviews. We have several awesome ones still coming up. We should thank Ben Katz, who edits us and makes us sound less idiotic, or at least me sound less idiotic. You're a very learned person uh, <laughs> oh, man. Than, than I actually am. 
And uh, last but never least, we should thank Kay Zalatrachi, who provided every uh, micron of music that you have heard on this and almost every show that we've ever done. Uh, check him out at musicbykays.com. Hire him to score your next film or, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, color grade your next film or do VFX for you. This guy can do it all. Or direct your next film. Jesus Christ, what can't Kays do? He's a really good director. I'm not joking. <laughs> ben, if people want to meet up with you, where or, you know, reach out to you in some way. Meet how, up how with can, me? Well, well, there's a Starbucks near my house. It's, uh, <laughs> it's in Sherman Oaks. Uh, come on over. Uh, check me out at benrock.com. Just the way it sounds. Benrock.com. Uh, you can find all my social media stuff. You can uh, check out my reel. You can uh, find my Twitter and yell at me on Twitter or yell at me for still being on Twitter. I don't know. It's up to you. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? I'm shaking my fist at you for still being on Twitter. Uh, I don't can... know, man. I just can't quit Titter. Twitter. I can't quit <laughs> Twitter. I just called it Titter. I'm, I'm tempted to just leave that in. Yeah, you, you probably should. Yeah, that's that's that sounds. Yeah, I right. called it Titter. Yeah, sure. Whatever. I'll live with it. Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Uh, we are a camera shop. We sell lots of things. We build studios. Uh, we, we consult for all kinds of people. If you have a project, if you have a studio or need equipment, uh, you should reach out to a shop like us, which doesn't have a uh, phone tree. And you can talk to a real human being Monday through Friday. And actually, we do sometimes after hours have some telephone support if you have an emergency there's a good chance actually if you call us odd hours like on the weekend someone might call you back because uh you know we're we're kind of crazy that way we we I didn't try know that we, you were anti-phone tree yeah we, we there's no phone tree you call us uh you don't have to press one you don't have to press nine you talk to a human if you don't talk to a human that means all the lines are busy but we got several lines so that's unlikely uh but still everyone gets a call back usually within an hour if that happens but uh you can just literally call us back again because uh there's no phone tree we're uh, we're you know down with phone no, trees not even a phone shrub yeah nothing no phone vines no phone lawns nothing there's no nothing. no phone <laughs> no anyway. phone plants of any kind well Ilya, would you like to take us out sure thanks for listening this has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>